Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. How good are you at navigating fights in your relationships? All couples who are truly in love are going to run into conflict. That's just part of what it means to deeply connect with another person. All humans are different, and navigating those differences means getting a little upset with each other from time to time. But women are so sensitive. That's why being a better lover requires that we learn the skills for working through conflicts when they arise. These aren't things we're taught as kids in school. But it turns out that there are scientifically proven strategies for dealing with conflict that have been mapped out by some of the smartest minds in psychology and sociology and human dynamics. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview the great teacher, Dr. Julie Helmrich, for a crash course on conflict management. You can learn more about Dr. Helmrich at juliehelmrich.com. But before you do, stay here for this really important and educational interview. All right, Helm Rick, we're doing this. Okay, excellent. So today we're going to talk about conflict between couples. Yes. One of the things that I like to um, sort of just ask people to do a little critical thinking, if you think about this idea that, uh, well, what's going wrong is I'm selecting the wrong person. I mean, that might be partly true, but it, human beings tend to make pretty decent choices. Most people don't actually say, yeah, by my third career, I figured it out. Your third job, maybe, but by my 15th house, I decided the right kind of house for me. So why is it that we think that, like, for a decision, like, who am I going to be with that people select so poorly? I don't think people select poorly. What I think is that for the most part, Americans could use a lot of help in just understanding the skills that are necessary to actually work. It's primarily when people divorce or break up, it's because they have differences. And so that becomes a question about um, what are you going to do with the differences? And since two out of three things that you come into the relationship with that are problems endure like learning they're not you can't fix them you how do you live with your differences is a pretty big question and even when you're dating you know there would be saying things that when you're dating that there are some differences like they're just deal breakers and everybody has their own list of deal breakers mine not nothing against anybody who's smoking but this is that's a deal breaker for me i grew up around a lot of smoke and i buried too many people that I loved related to smoke. And so that's a deal breaker for me. It's not a deal breaker for everybody. So there are particular things that are deal breakers, but there are a lot of things in relationships that they're not deal breakers. They're just, they're just roadblocks and people can't get through them. And when they can't get through them, they get demoralized and when they get demoralized and they start saying like, well, why don't we forget this? It's just too hard. There's not enough joy. Let's forget it. Maybe I married the wrong person. And so the number one, actually, there are probably two main things with a whole bunch of sort of corollary ideas that people actually need to do to deal with conflict better. And and one is to really understand um, that it's the accusatory nature of the conversation that makes it go bad right away. 
And people, I'm, the longer I look at this, the more I realize we can do accusation in like a million ways. <laughs> like an act, this, this doesn't sound like when you're, when you're the person saying it, you don't in your head say, I'm sure I'm, this is going to sound accusatory. But like a simple th- little thing like, um, well, I thought you were going to be home at uh, 5.15. Like that, that doesn't sound, it sounds like a question in your own head. But it's often received like, you're late, you did this on purpose, you're trying to bother me, you're trying to hurt me, you don't care about me, that's why you're coming in the door at 5.15, and I would like you to justify that. Like, that's how it's heard in like a nanosecond inside the other person's head. Or um, it'll, it sounds like, um, you know, I'm not, you, not going to talk to you when you're yelling like that. And so what... That can be a statement of like a sensible boundary on the one hand. The other person is going to hear it like, you know what's wrong with you? You're loud. You know what's wrong with you? You can never have a civil conversation. You know what's wrong with you? You, um, you like to fight and, and you, you like to be loud. You like to be a bully. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of accusatory stuff that goes on. So the number, like a number one understanding, Jordana, for couples to appreciate is that the interior life of another human being, I'm sure this isn't true of everybody, but it's true of um, 99.9% of us who are not fully enlightened, let's put it that way, that the interior life of a typical human being is um, one of self-accusation and self-justification. Like there's this little battle going on inside of most people And the self-accusation sounds a little like you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You could do better. You should do better. Why don't you uh, lose weight? Why don't you pick up your clothes? Why don't you earn more money? Why don't you that this is a, you know, this is a conversation. These little kind of negative kind of commentary is going on inside most people. And there's a really healthy part of them that eventually fights back and starts saying, I do do too, I do do, I do too do enough. I am enough. Um, I do a lot more than a lot of people in my family. Um, I'm, I'm kinder than most people. And that's the self justification. That's the second part, the healthy yeah. inside that fights back. Yeah. So in the inner yeah. life it's, of any it, person, we have the self accusation, the not enoughness and the, why don't you, and then the self-justification yeah. where we say, no, that's not true. I'm actually okay. Yeah, absolutely. So when somebody says to you, somebody outside you, your partner says, um, it's 5.15. I thought you were going to be home at 5 o'clock. That, that, um, that fight has probably already happened on the drive home or on the ride home. That fight inside the, their, the, the person's head has already happened. Like, you should have left work earlier. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you more efficient at work? Why didn't you? It's accusatory. Yeah. So what you're saying is this accusatory nature, the you know what's wrong with you voice, that already plays into the self-accusation that's already the interior life of this person. Absolutely. They've already had that fight inside of themselves on the way to see their partner yeah. who then only validates their self-accusation on the <laughs> yes. inside. Cool. Right. So I, I've given that a name. I call it the hitmaster, harsh <laughs> interior tat, harsh interior taskmaster. So if you understand that everybody's dealing with a hitmaster practically all the time, if if you understand that, then part of what you're trying to do in a conversation is you're actually trying to get on the side of the healthy per, the healthy part of that person. And the two of you kind of gang up against the hitmaster. So their inner self-justification is who you want to be on the side of. You don't want to be Correct. taking the side of the self-accusation. That's the bad side. You want to get on their healthy inside that fights back, which you call the self-justification. So how do we get on the side? How do we take the side of the self-justification then when we go to... It would sound something... So so because that... Let's just take that example. You get home at 5.15, you promise to be home at 5. The interior fight is going on the whole drive home, the whole ride on the subway home. And you, you walk in and you're, you're, you're sort of geared up for battle. And, and, you're gonna, and you might say something like, um, 
you know, I'm sorry I'm late. Like, you know, that project, the, you know, the traffic, the subway, the, you know, whatever the justification is. And, and the, the thing you want to say is going to sound something like, you know, honey, it's okay. You do a lot, you know, you do a lot. I mean, am I disappointed you're a little late? Yes. No, but in the big scheme of things, you know, it's cool. It's cool to be with you. And then, and then you, later you can bring up, you can say, you know, I don't mean this as a, as a criticism. This is like me trying to solve a problem. So you getting home later, if I had known you that it was going to be 515, I might have managed my day a little differently. But it, in the big scheme of things, it's still not a big deal, but I'd like to talk about that. So that it sounds like, you know, you and me against the hit master and the hit master isn't going to beat us on this time, this time, because um, I want to have a conversation with you. But I don't I don't want to shame you. I don't want to say there's something wrong with you. I don't want to say, you know, why don't you um, grow up and be better and, and all of that? I don't want to say I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person. So you approach it like. And, and letting your partner know it's cool to be with you. Yeah. It's not a big deal. I'm not here to criticize you. That's sweet. That's such a sweet attitude. It's cool to be with you. You always want your partner to feel that way. It's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people believe what will happen if I do that is I'm spoiling my partner and then they're going to start taking advantage of me. But it's the opposite that happens. Part of what happens is, I mean, just think about who you're going to want to be with 15 minutes faster. Somebody that, you know, when you walk in, they're going to go, Hey, it's cool that I'm with you. Like, why wouldn't you want to get home on time or early if you know you're walking into that kind of a situation? People are born, we are hardwired. This is another, like, um, we were talking earlier, right, about paradigm shifts. One of the real deep beliefs, especially in America, maybe it's in the entire human race, I don't know, is that people were born selfish and that we, you know, you kind of need to keep your eye out for that. But actually, we're hardwired for empathy. We literally, our brains are set up for empathy and connection with people, you know, oxytocin makes that's a it's a neurotransmitter and a hormone it makes us want to be connected to people it makes us overcome really a lot of worry about maybe somebody's in this just for themselves and mirror neurons are set up so that we can actually feel what people feel so all of our hard wiring all, all of that is set up so that we get and stay connected with other people so if you if you understand that and you sort of go with it what you try to do is you try to um, move in the direction of just having your partner feel super attached to you. Like usually adult romantic love is treated like it's an attraction, but it's, it's a lot more than that. It's an attachment bond, which is like the relationship between a mother and a child. And if you think about each other that way, Hey, you are my sweet little one, and I want you to feel safe and secure with me. You know, I, the image that I have in my head literally is of just holding a baby. But is that not sexy, though? I wonder if mother or child. Oh my God! Are you kidding me? The best, the best sex comes when people are securely attached to each other. Also, a piece of science. So you don't really mean mother child, though. What I mean is that attachment bond when you have that same kind of bond between two adults that you have that, uh, that it happens between mother and child, that is the absolute best relationship to be in. And it's the best sex. It's the most profitable. It's the most, it's the physically healthiest. People live the longest that we are really right. When you, when you basically love your partner and would sacrifice for them the way that a mother would sacrifice for a child. And your partner knows that. And, and your partner has that for you too. Yeah. Where it's equal. And there is nothing, there's nothing about that kind of sex that is anything except yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, I totally hear that. I know. And it's sort of creepy. That's I think, I think I got lost with them calling a mother child. I might've gotten lost for a second, but I totally know what you mean <laughs> in terms of if you're willing to, to sacrifice. Cause I, if I think about the way that in terms of just the ferocity of my mother's love, like she would just do anything for me. Yeah. Um, and I know that when I have a girlfriend, I'm really giving and really nurturing and in all those ways, 
Um, you know, and I know what you mean. Just it, and it, whenever I have that back, it's wonderful to have someone that mm-hmm. wants to give and participate in the love and all those different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like ferocity of love, I totally understand what you're saying. And if you think about, yeah, if you think about what is a part of that bond with respect to conflict management, you know that your mother or people that you have that kind of bond with, they can confront you and you do take the feedback. You do listen to the input. You, you want that relationship to stay strong. So with respect to how do you manage your differences inside that really tight bond? Um, yeah, it's the easiest place in the world to manage those differences. Yeah, absolutely. Like my, my closest people in my world, like my brother, for example, if he ever had input for me, everything would stop and I would just stop to listen to what he had to say because I have so much respect for him and I love him so much. Right. And uh, his like, yeah, so I think, so I know what you mean. When you're, and, and we also don't fight in a bad way. So if he had something to say, I'd really want to hear it. So it's sort of what we want to do is form that kind of attachment where the love is fierce, yeah. but um, but it's with an attachment where um, we're kind of cozy and safe to be around and we take the side yeah. of the their inner voice that's on their side always. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. And what people don't appreciate is the, um, the toxic nature of approaching conflict in an accusatory way. And I think because people don't appreciate that, they don't fight against it, work against it, try to, try to tag it in themselves, try to you know, go at a difference from a different angle, because they don't know that that's so toxic. They treat it like Whatever. Everybody would be mad if, if uh, you promised to be here at five and you're, it's 515 and that means this thing is messed up. Or, you know, let's change it from 515 to 545 because, you know, that can mess up a lot of things. If we were going to go to that yeah. movie. We were going to do this. We were going to meet our pals. So the, the tone, the accusatory tone where we might be totally triggered, yep. but even if we're triggered and even inside of our heads, we might be saying anyone would be triggered if they were me. Absolutely. The really important thing for us to realize in that moment is that despite however triggered we may be, the most important thing we can do is understand that if we speak in an accusatory way, it's toxic. We're, we're being, we're acting in a toxic way. Yeah. And I say, and I think, and, on, and also, I think it's important, like, maybe everybody would have the exact reaction you had. You know, maybe maybe the reaction of being irritated and hurt and let down, disappointed, maybe that is so sane, it's probably as sane, that 98% of the people on the planet would have that. That isn't really the point, though, of that. The point of it is that what you're trying to do with your partner or anybody you're dating that you're seriously interested in or even somebody you're trying to attract is that, you know, when there's something that goes wrong, you're actually trying to do this really simple thing. And this is a phrase I use all the time. I'll repeat it a few times. And it's not my phrase, but it's a phrase by a psychologist who I think has the best research on conflict. And the phrase that he uses is that you're trying to create a non-accusatory vantage point above the fray. Create a non-accusatory vantage point above the fray. Above the fray. So the fray is basically your day in and day out life with each other, which currently has turned into a fight. And a vantage point above that basically means I'm going to try to get some perspective. You know, I'm going to climb up these stairs. There's a fight going on down in the living room. I'm going to look over the ledge into the living room. I'm going to look at the fight and I'm going to look at it in a non-accusatory way. And my reaction when I'm doing that is I get a lot of like sort of warm, fuzzy feelings. Like you're in the middle of a fight and then you go and then you, you can pull yourself out of it for a moment. You sort of let yourself float above the fight a little bit, try to remove the accusation. You look back down on the two people and a feeling that you can pretty easily get is, you know, what's cool about us? We're trying to work this out. You know, what's cool about us? We aren't running away from each other. You know, what's cool about us? Um, we're, you know, we're landing a few punches and we're taking a few punches. I don't mean physically, of course, but like, you know, it's a decent fight because we're really saying some things that need to be said here. And you can get a feeling of like, yay us. I love the way you say that. You know what's cool about us. 
Um, I do think uh, the idea of being in the middle of a fight and then and then sort of floating above it without heavy drugs. I don't know what kind of drugs would do that. But, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, um, going let's sleep heavy drugs for some other time. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then looking from above and saying, you know what's cool about us? We're, we're figuring this out. And then you can sort of see she's saying this and I'm saying that. Yeah. But look how cool we are. We're cool because we're figuring this out and we're good people. That's really sweet. I, yeah, we're in. And we're engaged. Right, we're engaged. Is that easy to do in the middle of conflict? No, which is why you need the second thing. Okay, so I said yeah. there are two main things. So the, <laughs> okay. worst, the first one is like, you know, if you're super capable of doing this, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I teach it. So, you know, I'm relatively good at this, but relatively good at it means maybe six out of 10 fights. Right. But that's But most people can do it about... 0.5 out of 10 fights, maybe. Right. So, you, so you want to just move in that direction, being able to, in the midst of it, you know, be able to kind of build a joint platform above. So, you know, climb up to the platform, look down, perspective, non-accusatory, see what's cool about the thing, and really keep that in your head. Because the next thing that comes out of your mouth, if you can do that in your head, is going to be better. So, but you can't do that. So then, the the second skill that you want is it's called being capable of um, recovery conversations. So a recovery conversation, the analogy that I usually use is a, a plane has crashed. Okay, what do we do when a plane has crashed? We go to the crash site. And you pick up the parts? You pick up one part in particular you're going after, which is the black box, because you're trying to prevent the next plane crash. Um, Think of the black box. So in an, in an argument with a couple and this, you just have to accept about yourself. You have to accept it about your partner because you're human beings. And this is what human beings do in fights. They say stuff they don't mean. They also say mean stuff. They don't really mean. They say the mean thing. They don't really mean because they feel justified. You said a thing to me. It hurt me. I could just say a thing back at you because you hurt me, I get to hurt you back. This is what human beings do. It's really not, in a way, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, but you have to recover from it. You have to apologize. Does everyone do that, though? Because I don't think my ex and I said stuff that we didn't, that were wasn't true and that we didn't mean. I don't think we fought that way, necessarily. Well, you might not have. A lot of people, um, well, it can be done in a passive-aggressive kind of way, too. I'm not saying we didn't fight. I'm just saying I don't I don't think I remember either she or I saying things that were like false and unfair. That's that's super cool. <laughs> like that. Well, that it would be cool. But I but I <laughs> and for anybody who's listening to this, if they've done it, like welcome to the human race. Yeah, because this is what people do. And they do it because they feel they feel like their partner started the fight. Everybody always thinks the other person started the fight. They feel like the partner started the fight. And that they are justified in defending themselves. And part of defending myself is an attack on you to get you to stop doing what you're doing. So that's okay. I, people shouldn't worry about the me that mess. And they won't worry about it as much if they know that there is a methodology to come back afterwards. And by afterwards, I don't mean 15 minutes later. I mean like tomorrow morning after everybody slept or next Tuesday after everybody's had a couple days to cool down. So what do you do in that recovery conversation? There are two things that you're going for. One is, this is the stuff I said I didn't mean, I'm sorry. That's one. And then the other one is, um, this is the stuff I said that I do mean. This is important stuff to me. This is a point I'm trying to get across to you. So... I call that recovering the black box. The black box has the truth in it. Yeah. And so after a fight, everybody everybody has said something they mean. For the most part, people say some of the stuff that is important for their partner to get in a fight. Absolutely. In fact, that's, that's probably one of the reasons we have fight. Yeah. Which is that I don't know how to do this any other way, so I'm going to say it in a fight. Okay, welcome to the human race. And so this, I, I love this idea of the black box that a few days later, maybe not right after the fight because it's harder to see, but the plane crash, it's that black box gets recovered 
usually a day or two after, and then they go in and they look at what happened. And then that information is, the information is used to, for, the, for, the, for the company that built the airplane and for the company that runs the airplane to fly better and to have safer travel. Yeah, and that's exactly what you want to do with that recovery conversation is that you are, you're actually trying to get closer to each other. You're trying to understand each other better. You're actually trying to like, okay, we weren't planning on that crash. A crash happened. How come? What needs to change? Um, and and that is, that's a kind of an attitude that you basically, do, you know, around here we call them first-class marriages. You know, do you want to be in... I mean, and I would argue most people have a coach class marriage. So first class is cooler. And if you want to get into coach first class, how do you do it? And a big way is to, you know, the attitude has to be something like we, we have to have some humility about like, are we super skilled at relationships? And if you are, how do you know that? How did you study? Most people, if they're really good at, in a career, they've spent two, three, five, ten years studying in a particular area. And that's why they're fantastic. But how much time have people put into actually studying the science of relationships? And the answer is probably not very many. And, I mean, has anybody even spent a year actually studying the science of relationships? Most people don't. So then here's this thing so important. How would we get good at it if we aren't studying it? And so most people, well, well, I've seen a lot of relationships or my mom and dad, like, okay, so you're picking up a few things along the way, but it's just smart to have some humility around, like, maybe we're doing the best we can right now, but that isn't the best that can be done. And, and so when you go back to the black box, it's good to have some humility, like, let's examine the contents here from the vantage point that maybe we aren't, like, you know, top of the pile, super expert at relationships. What is cool about us isn't so much that we have perfect relationship skills, it's that we love each other and we want to have better skills. That's what's really cool about us. So let's go back and try to get some information that will help us, you know, keep that bond going. So that is why sometimes it takes a couple of days because, you know, before those couple of days, everybody's still hurting and everybody's still, um, you know, stinging, stinging from some of the things that were sad. And and with that sting, you want to remember with humility that, you know, I get that you're not good at this. Maybe I'm not good at this. No one taught us this. They teach us things in school to memorize that we'll never need to use again, but nobody comes in and teaches us how to have good relationships, which right. is not taught. And if, and if the only thing you have to model are your parents who might not have had the best models themselves. Yep. And so it's important to have that humility. So, um, you know, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. You, you try to get, yeah, you try to get in learner mode. You try to get in learning and understanding. You know, if you think about this, if you go into a new class, most of us, well, today people take their laptops, but I'm old enough to remember when you were went into a new class, and for each new class, you had a new spiral notebook. I remember that, too. And, and your job is to sit there. Your job is to sit there and take notes because you're trying to learn. You're trying to understand. And I usually feel like a couple is on the right track for kind of getting it right when they they show up for a conversation, especially like one of these recovery conversations, with a tablet. Like, take some notes. The other person is saying something to you they would like you to learn and they would like you to understand. How about take some notes? Yeah. You don't even have to agree with it. In fact, lots of times you won't agree with it. Just write down what she said. Yeah, but just write, yeah, exactly. Write down what she said and then just go like, She's trying to help me understand something. And by the way, this is um, this is how the early Greeks, so Plato, Plato believed that it was the purpose of a relationship, and you should show up with whatever their version of a spiral notebook was and take notes from the other person who knows a lot about you and is probably an expert. That came from Plato. Yeah, and then and then what happened with romant romanticism and the um, 
oh gosh, let's say late 1800s or maybe mid 1800s, was this idea that love is magic and, you know, it's finding your soulmate. And then when you find them, poof, you know, magic is going to happen basically for the rest of your life. And there shouldn't be that much talking going on. So that is in human history, the Greeks had it right. And this idea that we shouldn't have to talk, 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 and understand uh, what's going on with each other. And also your partner's probably since they've had a front row seat on you for a while, they're probably the person to take the most notes from. They probably know the most. Yeah, they know a thing. They know a thing or two about you. Yeah, that's hard. But It's hard, yeah. Well, if we had been schooled in that idea, we would have been taking a lot more notes a lot sooner with just about everybody we ever had a friendship with. But honestly, I think most of us think, well, why would we... Um, you know, it's not my job to teach you, you know, it's my job to accept you, which is kind of true. But then that does mean there's a, sh a shrunken kind of relationship. If you if you respect the fact that if somebody spent a month with you, six months with you, two years with you, and they've done that, and they've been there, maybe not 24 seven, but a lot of time with you, like, why wouldn't they be a little bit of an expert on you? an expert from their vantage point, maybe, you know, other people have other expertise about you, but why not just appreciate, like, I could learn something about myself from this person. I mean, I, I sort of have that attitude towards anybody I'm interacting with, but, but, um, but especially your partner has a real front row seat on you. So, you know, try to learn a thing or two or anybody you're dating. I, I was thinking before, uh, you know, when you reached out and said, how about a conversation? Um, for your podcast, a thing that I was thinking about your particular group that would be really, maybe they already know this, but if they don't like high five, everybody on this one, when relationships, same sex relationships are compared to heterosexual relationships. Um, there are, there are two findings that I think are really interesting. One is that, um, the best relationships are women with women. They're the best. Yeah, they are the best for for the simple reason, and the hardest ones are actually men with men, for a simple. It's kind of the same simple reason. Um, there aren't very many differences, but that's one of them. Is that if you want to really study relationships, uh, like who's really good at relationships, study a woman who's with a woman. They turn out on other relationship sciences like the best at the stuff that's hard. Followed by number two heterosexual relationships because there's a woman involved. And then at the bottom, the guys who are with each other, that's a hard thing because the, the, what really makes relationships best, what intimacy really comes from are intimate conversations. All other kind of intimacy is built on that. So anybody who can have good conversations and then intimate conversations, they're going to have emotional intimacy, affectionate intimacy, sexual intimacy. They're going to have, so, you know, kudos to all the gals who are with gals. You have the best shot on the planet of having perfect, great relationships. Well done. <laughs> we all make jokes about our processing and how much it goes. And I actually have a lot of friends that are bisexual who, um, who say, although it doesn't always work out this way, um, but they always say after ending a long-term relationship with a man that, you know, they say, I just want to, you know, they miss that into the, the emotional intimacy and then end up saying this, this time around, I want to be with a woman. Yeah. And I love what you were talking about with the notebook, with writing down what people say. Mm -hmm. I always follow, I always walk around with a notebook and love writing stuff down. And my friends, I, I yeah. write down a lot of notes. I, I don't know that I write down them telling me stuff about me as much as them just giving advice about life and the world. I'm always taking down advice from friends. Yeah. Uh, but maybe I should, maybe I should ask more questions about me. Yeah. I guarantee, I guarantee you that, but, but not, I you know, don't want to sound narcissistic, but let, let's talk about me now. <laughs> as I sit there with a pen <laughs> <Yeah>. and paper. <laughs> well, I guarantee you, um, you'd, you'd have to pull it. You'll have to pull it out of most people because, they they recognize like uh oh I'm being asked to tell you the truth about who you are to me I yeah and that gets that gets like uh oh you know do I have to say everything or just everything that I love about you right you that's know? hard so, right yeah it's hard to hear and it's hard to say I think um, yeah 
Here's another tip for um, people that will help them understand what's generally going on in a fight. Most fights are not, they're only partly about what the fight is about. Okay. In other words, you come home late, 45 minutes, and we have a fight about that. Um, it does look like we're fighting about time. It looks like we're fighting about punctuality. It looks like we're fighting about something like that. But for the most part, fights at, at a deeper level are all about who am I to you? Also, I'm, I'm worried that you mean more to me than I mean to you. And also, I deserve to mean as much to you as you mean to me. And so there's a lot of worry about that in people. And so you're coming home 45 minutes late because I don't mean that much to you. Wait, this is huge. Let's pause. Let me, I just want to like make sure I understand this. The two main causes of fights are the questions, who am I to you? And the worry that you mean more to me than I mean to you. And so then therefore I'm not safe. Correct. And those being these like are, are basically the two underlying what sensations or concepts that underlie all fights. Yeah. If you were to, if, if you could like, let's just say, get inside the head of the person who's at home waiting for the partner to show up and they're not, they're late and now they're later. Now they're even later. There will be at the surface, like some frustration or anger about you said you were going to be home at five. And we talked about it, you promised. And at the top of that is like anger about that. And then below that is going to be a sorrow that, oh, uh, this thing that I used, I thought this was important to you, and I'm sad that this doesn't have importance to you. And then below that is this fear of abandonment that is like, you are late because I'm unimportant to you. And this is just the start of you're going to leave me and I'm going to be alone. Wow. Now, how many people have that all super clear in their head? I don't know. But if you, at, if you go into any fight and you just keep asking, and you like in my, in my job, I get to keep asking and go deeper and deeper and deeper. Eventually, it gets to that super primal panic that... I just don't mean that much to you. And because of that, you will be leaving me. And that, that fear of abandonment is so, and isolation is so bad for human beings that it sets off automatically everything in us that, that just, we just go into super survival mode and attack mode and all sorts of things. So calming that fear down in each other is should be like step one in practically everything. The first step always being soothing that fear of abandonment. Wait, what the, who does the what am I to you? Who am I to you? Yeah. That was the first part, and I'm not clear on that. Both people have that. But and, and so is it also the fear of abandonment? That's just another word for the I were you mean more to me than I mean to you? It's just another way of saying it? Yeah, that, yes, that's more of a, like, who am I to you is a curiosity. But when it gets into panic mode, it's like, uh oh, I think I know who I am to you, and I mean less to you than you mean to me. Oh, I see. So when you were first talking about it, it was like a descending. Yeah. It was like a descending uh, slide. It mm -hmm. starts with, "Wait a minute, why did this happen? I'm I'm confused." And then, uh oh, now I'm worried. You mean more to me than I mean to you. And then, oh my God, you're going to leave me because I, you know, and it's sort of a conviction, it's sort of a sliding. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so then the step one is easing the fear of abandonment in our partner. Uh, step one of a good relationship is really letting that person know that you're, yep. you're not going anywhere. Absolutely. Which, by the way, requires people to have conversations that are unpleasant that they don't want to have. Like, I'm a little bored with you and I'm telling you because I don't want to leave you. I'm telling you because like 30 more years of being bored is going to kill me. You know, I'm saying that it's getting, we, you know, that, that this repetitive conversation or, or you talking about things in a superficial way or me, you're telling me stuff, but like, oh, I went to the museum and, and 
what was it like? And, you know, what was the impact of that on you? Like, for the most part, boring conversations are because people leave out the interesting part. And the interesting part is the impact of those events on you. What's the, you know, yeah, I saw my mom today. And um, it was good. Uh, Okay, you were there for four hours. Yeah, well, it was good. See, that's a boring conversation, and one person's trying to make it interesting by saying, so, what went on inside you those four hours you were with your mom? What do you guys talk about? How did the, what you talked about affect you? So it's the impact, it's the emotional impact on, uh, is what makes a story. You don't think ever talk, too much talk about what went on inside you can also get boring? Well, if it's done in the in a, I don't need anybody to be in the room because I'm just talking to myself, like I'm journaling in front of you. Yeah, that could get boring. But but for the most part, people do it. Well, I don't know. Maybe women with women do talk too much. I don't think so. I think I think talking. I think when it's interesting, what's interesting is what's inside the person. That's what that, and that's truly. That's true for men, too. Like people don't think men are interested in that stuff. The interpersonal growth groups that I ran, I, they were very interested in what was really going on in other si- inside other people. Like, this is the phrase, what's really going on inside you, which is kind of complicated, and it's interesting. And good movies, good storytelling always, always gets way below the surface of the events. My, the most interesting conversations to me are, are conversations about people and their relationships with each other. Yeah. But obviously, maybe that's just because I'm a relationship coach. So. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. But I don't think I, I'm, I'm going to actually go back to what you just said and say, I don't think so. I think everybody's interested in what's going on between people. They just don't know how to get at it. If you're a relationship coach, you have skills about how to get at that other people don't. If you look at um, movies, like think about the movie industry. Movies without emotion, people just don't even go to. Well, what creates the emotion it tends to be something that is going on inside somebody, often their feelings about themselves or their emotional life with somebody else. That's what makes the movie interesting. Cool. So just bringing it back to what we were saying, it's important to have the difficult conversations conversations with our partner yeah. because we don't ever want to abandon them. So if there's an important thing to say to them, like I'm unhappy or unsatisfied in a certain way, it's important to discuss that so that I never have to leave you, that kind of thing, having those conversations. Exactly, exactly. We have to have this conversation because if we can't talk about this, it's going to be harder and harder and harder for me to stay close to you. And I want to stay close to you. That's my number one thing is I want us to be close. And this thing or that thing is interfering with me being able to be close to you. And can people always change those things? Like you you were talking, you know, so if there is a boring person who talks about going to a museum but nothing else, um, is everybody capable of making those changes? Yeah. So marriage therapists, marriage counselors, um, the ones that are great appreciate something really simple, which is that there are a lot of patterns in relationships that are completely unfixable. And you either get good at talking about them or, or you just suffer. And if people suffer too much, they just can't stay. And they'll leave that relationship and go into another one where it's a different version of the same pattern. Like here's a pattern that's really common, the pursuer-distancer pattern. The pursuer wants more engagement. The distancer wants um, wants um, some time alone. And people are more likely in their relationships to be pursuers or more likely to be distancers, like just in general in how they live. Well, it's pretty common for those two people to find each other and they're attracted really to what's opposite about me and you nothing wrong with that but there's that pattern leaves everybody feeling deprived including the person who's the distancer the the pursuer it's easy to see how they're deprived right because i want more connection with you and the distancer is like i was thinking we had enough connection and and they so there's a lot of tension there and the the there's the pain with that that is inevitable 
can be actually reduced by the two of them being able to talk about that. Like it's helpful if the pursuer is able to say, mm-hmm, I was thinking about coming over and sitting on the couch with you right now. Cause you know, that thing I have. And then the distancer can look at her and say, I know when I was just super enjoying having the couch all to myself. So like you're miserable, right? I am a little miserable and I'd be miserable if you came over here. All right. How about this? 15 minutes of misery for both of us, you know, and, and then, and they will laugh about that. And that means I'm going to sit on the loan. I'm going to be able to yay read by myself on the couch for 15 minutes. And then you're going to come over and lay on my lap for 15 minutes. And, but you know, the fact that they can talk about it and, and say, yeah, we're commiserating about the fact that this is a thing that's probably not going to change in us. There's another th- pattern that shows up with money all the time with couples. It's called the bypasser, non-bypasser pattern. And the bypasser wants to deal with problems by let's go to a movie. Let's, let's, uh, let's just forget this thing. And let, let, like, look, work is too hard and this is too hard. Why don't we just take a break? And that's the bypasser. And the non-bypasser is like, we can't, we're not going to, we're never going to figure out our finances if we don't talk about them. You know, we have to sit here with the spreadsheet and do something about it. Like, no, the spreadsheet always makes a fight. Let's go to a movie instead. Let's have sex instead. And, and, and that's a, that's a really common pattern of why don't we just enjoy our money and and, 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 and go to a movie. No, why don't we really like run our money better? Then we won't have to worry about it so much. And so that, that is a really, they're both trying to deal with reality, but one of them tries to deal with reality by let's just take a break from reality. Let's do a little fantasy stuff here. And the other one's like, no breaks from reality. Well, they're both right. They both, they're both right. So part of part of that one is it's the same thing, just sort of. Well, I see. I'm trying to deal with our money situation by just taking a break from it, right? And I'm trying to deal with our money situation by trying to get a conversation with you going. You know, it's cool about us. We're both trying to deal with our money situation. That's what's cool about us. Um, when we do the spreadsheet in the morning, why don't we go to a movie tonight? Okay, good idea. Yeah. But people get to that that kind of um, a consensus or like a compromising position that is okay with everybody because it's acknowledged that we're different in how we deal with hard stuff. I just want to like zone out and get out of here. Yeah. I just want to get it fixed right now. And again, they're both kind of miserable, but less miserable if they can talk about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we talked about miserable now twice uh once with the money and then once with the pursuer and the distancer um and i wonder you know some people when you talked about that either getting through conflict or you know in the beginning other people just saying forget this yeah uh and i wonder is misery sort of i mean because no one's perfect right so Correct. Yeah. So probably if you decide, no, I'm not going to take this, I'll go find someone else. You're just going to have a different flavor of what you're calling here misery with another person. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that that is one of the absolute, and I'll try to make sure I say this in a way that it comes out the way I mean it, but that to me is one of the funniest things about human beings that if you look at, this is how I think about it. Whoever you marry, you married a certain set of problems. You can get rid of that set of problems by marrying somebody else, but you you just picked up a different set of problems. So it is kind of smart to hook up with somebody who ha- that creates a set of problems you can deal with. And someone you're attracted enough to and like who's kind enough so that even as you're dealing with problems, you know it's a very attractive, nice person. Uh, who's going to treat you well. Yeah, but here's the ironic thing is that from the outside in, an awful lot of people in marriages look like attractive, nice people. 
and then you get on the inside of the marriage and there's a thing or two that doesn't look quite so nice and their partner might be the only one that really knows that this this might be six eight years into a relationship and if people are prepared with the a basic kind of idea that everybody i could partner with in any kind of permanent way is going to create a certain set of problems you know full stop there is no perfect person out there that i will never have to deal with any kind of conflict i will never have to um deal with any kind of unfairness i will never have to deal with any kind of values conflicts or you know i mean that ironically for me i think the pursuit of that is the absolute worst thing that a human being can do who's looking for happiness because it depends on what you think a relationship is for but i think a relationship isn't just for total comfort i think a relationship also is a major opportunity to get a closer look on what it's really like to be with you and at some point you probably want to you know stop swapping people out and start saying this is the person i'm going to try to um this is the person i'm going to stick with and part of why i'm going to stick with them is it will be demanding of me you know i i will be i will be confronted with some things about me and that's and the, and yeah good yeah opportunity to grow absolutely and and to find resources inside me i never knew i had yeah and to find capacities inside me i did, i i i only ever saw in other people people often have that feeling when they have their first child like i had no idea i could love like this i had no idea i could um be as happy on such a small amount of sleep um i had no idea that i could manage stuff like this and and really what they're saying is like i didn't know i was like this and i wouldn't have known i was like this until i was put in a position of like being extremely tested let's put it that way yeah having a child having an infant raising kids extremely testing so people you know why do people keep having babies i mean some of it is really is to to have the experience of that kind of love and that kind of capacity and we can make the choice with a relationship to treat it on that level to take your relationship that seriously yeah that you really like grow yourself into just such a better person in doing it absolutely absolutely nice and, and i love how you put that i love how you put that thank you yeah and i love how you put it and you keep saying it over and over again is that you know what's so cool about us because that's so tender that's so sweet i i think that way about people I I mean my favorite thing about I like people just generally but my favorite thing about people is that in spite of a divorce rate that is what it is and in spite of how difficult it is like people get up every morning and they just let's do this again let's try this again let's let's um let's learn to be as careful with each other as we can let's learn to be as authentic with each other as we can let's learn to manage all of this stuff the best we can i think it's um you know as a psychologist i've always liked people but when i started doing marriage counseling i started just like falling all over in love with people again because like this is hard shit and people do it you know it's like being impressed with the with nasa like let's get people in the moon on the moon or to mars like that's an amazing amount of ambition to think about like yeah let's try to do that let's work against the odds and i think that's i like that about people let's go against the odds and get married anyway good cool i'm on your side oh yeah people are cute love is my favorite <laughs> uh and i really love this advice i just absolutely love that the way that sounds during a fight sort of going meta taking a birds eye view looking back and saying you know hey this is what's cool about us and when you understanding that maybe your number one job with your partner if you are looking for a long term partnership then your job is to ease the fear of abandonment in her yeah it's safety i wonder though is there someone who might push back i might i wonder if there's if i'm hearing like you know an objection of like oh um does that 
you know, people sometimes try and play hard to get. The playing hard to get, there are lots of ways to think about that. And, you know, let's set aside like people who are just being mean and say you know, that there is a group that that's, it's just a version of meanness, but everybody else, I think um, it's that same thing of like, I have to play a little hard to get because I'm not sure you mean as much. I mean as much to you as you mean to me. And that's nerve wracking for me. And I'm frightened about that. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to play it cool here. In the in the courses that I teach, I, I, I label that the Clint Eastwood problem, not Clint Eastwood himself, but, you know, Clint Eastwood characters have this, I don't need anybody, um, uh, you know, I'm a rock, I'm an island, that kind of thing. And it's neediness is truly unattractive, but we the the point isn't to be, lacking in neediness it's to be skilled with dependency so somebody who is unskilled with dependency is whiny and they're entitled and they don't they're not grateful and they're demanding and um it could be the same need though and then somebody who's really skilled with dependency they're super grateful they know what their they know what their needs are. They reveal their needs. Um, they give the person a chance to respect that this is a need of theirs and try to work to you know meet it somehow if it's possible inside the relationship. And then there there's a lot of gratitude for um, there's a lot of gratitude for that. And these are like skilled people who are skilled in dependency are fun to be around. You want them for friends, you want to marry them. But that playing hard to get is sort of, I'm faking it, I don't have any needs. Okay, if you don't have any needs, good for you. But I think you do. It's so nice to just know that you're safe in your relationship and to have a partner that's grateful for you when you come home, that focuses on what's cool about you guys that takes the side of your inner self-justification as opposed to your inner accus accusations. Yeah, absolutely. And that is willing to tell you the hard stuff about you so that you can grow and that she can love you through it mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and in a place where you're safe to grow. Yes. This is great. It's the only game in town. It's the only game in town, I think. Such good advice. All of it. So sweet and tender. And I love it. And I'm, I'm totally taking that one with me that, you know, what's cool about us. I think it's great. I absolutely love it. And it is. It is. I mean, you know why that works? It's true. Yeah. It's... That's a statement that works because it's true. Yeah. The thing I um, loved most about my ex was that she would always, uh, if I ever reached for my hand, she would always, and if I ever reached for her hand, she would always give it to me. And I, I tell yeah. that to people, you know, be the partner that yeah. if your partner yeah. reaches for your hand, give it to her, you know, take it. Yeah. So sweet. This has been great advice. Are there other things that I didn't ask about? Or is there any other information on this that we? Well, I mean, you know, I do this for a living. Right. There's 10 years of it. Oh, yeah. yeah, probably. There's a boatload of marriage science that would help people find and keep good partners. So if this being like, is this, have we finished this chapter so that we can then do another chapter another time? Or is there still more on this chapter that we haven't wrapped up? Well, the main thing about conflict is to try to develop a non-accusatory attitude and approach the, your differences that way. But that's the main takeaway from management of conflict is develop an, a non-accusatory attitude, which, by the way, once you start, I, you know, this would be a challenge for your listeners. The next four or five or 15 conversations that they hear, they don't even have to be in it. Just listen for all of the ways that human beings have of being accusatory. But, you know, and it comes, you know, that's a really, it's an interesting little lab experiment to just sit at a coffee shop and listen in on relationships and listen to how much of what's going on is an accusation. Like, did you read the paper this morning? Did you see that blah, 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 did blah, blah, blah? I mean, that is generally not, that's generally an accusation. Did you see that Monsanto did blah, blah, blah? That's going to be an accusation again against Monsanto, which might be well-deserved, but it's still an accusation. Because underneath it is the, do you know what's wrong with them? Yeah. Or do you know what's wrong with you? Yeah. So you know what? 
there, I, this is a thing that I failed to bring to you because if people say, okay, I'm going to try to develop a non-accusatory attitude towards anybody I'm dating or anybody I'm um, moving in the direction more commitment, yeah, yeah. So what do I replace that with What is a really good next question. And what she should think about replacing it with um, is an exploratory attitude. And what, how do you know you're being exploratory when you're actually asking questions you don't already have an answer for? And a lot of people, it takes them a little while to develop that skill because they've, I, sometimes I think it's our education system and a lot of things, but we're supposed to have, you know, we're supposed to have answers to the questions we're asking. But basically that is much more in the category of accusatory. It's like I'm interrogating somebody because I know the answer. I'm just trying to get them to say it. Mm, a leading question. Yeah, well, and, and uh, yeah, it's a leading question, but it's also, I don't have an actual question. I'm making a statement. I, I'm hiding it behind a question. So if, if a, it does help if you say, I'm, not, I'm going to try to make myself come up with questions that I actually don't have an answer to. Because that's when that's a question. Because what I love this, the, an accusation is when you don't have a question. Yeah. You have a statement, but you're hiding your statement inside of the question. Right. That's an accusation. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I just learned something. Yeah. I learned a lot of things, but this is great. So you can ask the same question, and if you're asking it from an exploratory vantage point, it's going to sound like an ex. It's going to sound exploratory. Like there's a difference between what took you so long to get home, and. Um, Hey, what took you so long to get home? There's a difference between those two. Right. And one of them might, one of them, the person might say traffic was amazing. And the other one, the other, the, the second one, and the, the first one, they might say, well, oh, you mean like New York traffic has changed? Is that what you want me to tell you that? Well, you know, suddenly I got a helicopter. That's how it come. You know, I, I left the helicopter at the helipad and I took the subway. That's why I'm late. And an exploration if you keep an exploratory attitude and you go, I really do, this really is a question I don't have an answer to, you will, answer, you will, you will even ask the same question with a completely different tone. You'll, you'll ask the same question with different words. But it'll, it'll come out, it creates a space for the other person to put some, some truth, some of their own truth into. And then that is part of what builds the relationship. Now we understand each other better. Now we know more about each other. I love it. I love everything you said. Um, maybe one last comment. Yeah. Is that, and we already talked a little bit about this, but but it's probably just to underline it to so that people are clear about it. The always when there's a problem, there is the stated problem, and then there's the problem that is created by trying to deal with that problem. And that second part is always a skill set issue. So we have a problem with our money. Yes, you do have a problem with handling your money, but you have another problem, which is we don't have the skills to be able to handle our money problem. So I always call that, I, I put it in a simple way. There's the problem and then there's the other problem. There's the problem of the money or there's problem of not enough sexual intimacy. There's the problem of in-laws getting in the way. There's the problem of stuff with kids. There are those problems, but then there's the other problem is we don't have the skills to deal with those problems. And of the two, you for sure want to lean into getting skills, which is where your work comes in. Like, go, go talk with a relationship coach. Get some skills. Like, don't think that this is about my personality problems. It's probably your skill problems. And skills are things you can acquire. Everything can be learned. These are skills that can be acquired. So, hey. Go acquire them. It's way more fun life if you have the skills, which is why they should call you up and get some coaching from you. Or call you up and get some therapy. <laughs> We've got a very wise woman on the line here. It would be, uh, it would be good for our entire culture to, to think that, you know, people go get coaching for their, um, you know, if they have a knee problem, they go get a physical therapist, they get some help and some coaching from the th physical therapist. It would be nice if we had the, a similar kind of non-accusatory thing going on for people getting relationship coaching. 
Absolutely, and books. Um, Absolutely. And reading, reading the resources, or it would be cool if in school they just taught emotional intelligence more. Um, these are such important things. Yeah, absolutely. This is awesome. And thank you so much. I've, this has been such a great talk. Happy to participate. Have fun in New York. I will. Thanks for being such a wise friend. Okay. Talk later. And now we would love to hear from you. What's the most impactful thing that Dr. Helmerk shared during the interview? And how is it going to change the way you deal with your lovers when conflicts arise? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and have passionate intimacy together, then there are free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a guidebook for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quick guide to the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you could fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of this is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training, training series I created to help you get on your game to find your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other queer women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.